Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Today, we'll be talking about cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes with Dr. Jonathan Purnell. Dr. Purnell is Professor of Medicine at the Oregon Health and Science University Knight Cardiovascular Institute. He also chaired the Endocrine Society's recent educational series entitled Current and Future State of Cardiovascular Disease and Type 2 Diabetes. If you haven't taken part in that course yet, it's available on demand until the end of the year on the Society's Center for Learning, and we'll include a link to it in today's episode description. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Purnell. I'm very happy to be here, Aaron. Great. Well, before we get started, let me first say this episode is supported by independent medical educational grants from Boehringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Lilly USA LLC, and Novo Nordisk. So a big thank you to those groups. Now, I know today's topic is cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes, but I'd like to start with a few questions about prediabetes, if I may. What is the relationship between prediabetes and cardiovascular disease? You know, it's a very good question and one that we wanted to highlight in our educational series. And that is that oftentimes prediabetes is an underappreciated marker or risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And depending on what study you want to cite, it can be as much as a 20% increase in cardiovascular risk if you're diagnosed with prediabetes by A1C and or fasting blood glucose to up to twofold increased relative risk in heart attacks for patients who have this diagnosis. Stroke risk is also increased as much as 40% when patients are diagnosed with this condition. These are some pretty significant numbers that you're saying here. So let's think about prediabetes and what are some of the best treatment approaches for individuals with prediabetes? This is also an area that is an opportunity to really strike at the beginnings of cardiovascular risk with patients who are likely to get diabetes. Because when you have prediabetes, one of the major reasons why you want to manage it is so that it does not progress to diabetes, where the risk for cardiovascular disease go even higher. And within the patients who are identified with prediabetes, studies that have looked at various opportunities to intervene really highlight the benefits of lifestyle. And the classic study in this area right now, or historically has been the diabetes prevention program, which took patients who had uh, prediabetes defined again by fasting blood glucose and A1C criteria. And they typically had also met criteria for obesity as well, and randomized to receive either a control arm of usual care or an intensive lifestyle management that included up to 150 minutes of uh, exercise per week, along with dietary intervention that included frequent uh, meetings with dietitians to emphasize increasing intake of whole foods that typically involve more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and also a little bit of moderation in terms of how much patients ate. And There was another uh, treatment arm that also received metformin, which is a medication traditionally reserved for patients with diabetes. And 
what they found was that the group that did the best were the ones who received the intensive lifestyle intervention. Nearly a 60% reduction in progression over time to type 2 diabetes, accompanied by about a 4% long-term average weight loss. Now, for a lot of folks, that degree of weight loss is not terribly inspiring because the hope would be that there would be further or greater weight loss than that. But the main outcomes was the reduction in progression to diabetes and accompanied increased risk in cardiovascular events at that point. Metformin also did reduce the likelihood of progressing to diabetes, but about by half as, as beneficial as lifestyle. So really right now, what we try to emphasize is approaches that incorporate healthier food choices, more activity, not just necessarily putting on Lycra and going to the gym, but actually incorporating activity into your daily life, our modern conveniences, as well as changes within what we do for work have really tended towards becoming more sedentary over time. And trying to reverse that trend is a huge challenge. It's not something that you can necessarily do with a prescription in your office, but encouraging patients to do, like if they're, they did do a gym, maybe to walk or ride their bikes to the gym there and back again, rather than uh, drive their car to it. Um, in during the day, taking frequent breaks that involve at work that involve more activity type of things. I totally hear what you're saying. And it's so true, the whole sedentary lifestyle that we live in these days. I was just thinking about myself. You know, I, I ride in my car sitting down, you know, for my long commute to get to an office where I sit down for a long time. And then I sit again for my hour and a half long commute back home. And somehow by the end of all that, I'm tired <laughs> you know, from all that sitting down. And so you're, you're, you're right on the money there. In your course that we've been talking about, diabetes is addressed as a cardiovascular disease equivalent and accelerator. I just wanted to ask, what does that mean exactly and, and why is it important? This actually began back in the 90s with a study that came out of uh, Scandinavia. It was called the East-West Study. Steve Hafner really championed it. We know that the greatest risk for having a future cardiovascular event is actually having a previous one. So we had always known that if you had an MI or a stroke, that puts you in the highest risk category, a priority for having a, a future heart attack risk. That's a secondary prevention type approach. Primary prevention means that, you know, you haven't had a heart attack and we need to sort of use calculators and other estimates of risk to say, well, how bad can that be? And what the study that I just referred to showed was that if you had a diagnosis of diabetes, it was the same in terms of future heart disease risk as if you'd already had a heart attack. So having a diagnosis of diabetes, especially type 2, is considered a risk equivalent to having had a heart attack. And that's why all the major societies really emphasize aggressive lipid-lowering management and optimization of glucose control in that situation. What I mean by an accelerant, or what we mean by an accelerant, is that if you have hypertension, if you've had a history of a stroke, if you have hyperlipidemia, all those things independently are associated with cardiovascular risk. And basically what you can do is any step along the way, whatever that baseline risk is with having hypertension, double it if you have diabetes. Mm. Or if you have hyperlipidemia, just double it. So it's as if you've got something that gives you that risk and then the diabetes accelerates it on top of that. 
So we're already talking about this a little bit, but when you think about the major risk factors for coronary heart disease, diabetic kidney disease, heart failure, specifically in individuals with type 2 diabetes, what, what are those major risk factors? Historically, there's been the top four, which has always been diabetes. And most of the research that went on when you had a diagnosis of diabetes revolved around the hyperglycemia itself, which has been shown to be a predictor of heart disease risk. So just having hyperglycemia and bringing that down is important. And there's also high blood pressure as well as smoking and hyperlipidemia. Now with the case of diabetes, you can still have hyperlipidemia, but the form of lipid abnormality is probably more commonly occurs with uh, diabetes is called dyslipidemia, where you have a, a combination of higher triglycerides than normal, a low HDL, and LDL oftentimes is normal, but we still know that it is proratherogenic because as a result of this combination of factors in the bloodstream is oftentimes remodeled into small dense LDL. So you have this kind of package of lipid abnormalities and one of the important things from a clinical standpoint um, that we try to emphasize in our tutorial as well is the importance of non-HDL cholesterol in this situation. Historically, we have relied on the LDL cholesterol in our risk assessment and then decisions about whether or not we're meeting targets. But when you have elevated triglycerides, that means you're also trapping cholesterol in these triglyceride particles that aren't picked up in the traditional LDL measurement. So that's where using the non-HDL cholesterol, which includes LDL and also cholesterol on IDL and VLDL becomes important because you may have a normal LDL cholesterol, but if your non-HDL cholesterol remains elevated, you're leaving sort of money on the table, so to speak, in terms of managing risk factors for your patients with diabetes. It's an interesting that you brought up kidney disease because Historically, that's been an important, what we call microvascular outcome in patients with diabetes, as opposed to macrovascular outcomes. So microvascular outcomes included neuropathy, retinopathy, and uh, nephropathy. But literature, research, and outcome studies have really identified markers of kidney dysfunction in the form of microalbuminuria, as well as renal function to be independent predictors of cardiovascular disease too. So you have on the one hand, diabetes, which is associated with cardiovascular disease and also diabetes, which is associated with kidney disease. And now kidney disease is also independently associated with heart disease. So we have this sort of triad involving the kidney now that we now recognize is important. And this becomes important as I think we're gonna talk about in a little bit about therapies. Because neurodiabetes therapies have demonstrated benefits on macrovascular outcomes, also coincidentally have shown improvements in uh, renal protection as well. And finally, I'll just say that the heart failure aspect and the risk factors for uh, heart failure outcomes, especially in diabetes, have independent effects of the glucose control. So the state of insulin resistance in diabetes probably is a major factor in a type of heart failure called heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, which is becoming more and more common. But I also want to point out the importance of both a risk factor for diabetes and heart failure, but also an independent 
causative agent for these is also the state of overweight and obesity, particularly central obesity. So we also emphasize that recognizing and targeting weight management with both considering anti-obesity medications and bariatric surgery important as well. You know, one thing that you really take an intense look at is the cardiovascular outcome trials. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the important outcomes that you've seen from those trials, specifically in relation to impacts on glycemic control, cardiovascular disease, diabetic kidney disease, risk reduction in individuals with type 2 diabetes. We spend a fair amount of time, especially in the second and third cases, trying to highlight the importance of some recent data that's come out with regards to management of diabetes with medications. As I mentioned before, historically, we have divided complications of diabetes into microvascular and macrovascular outcomes. And pretty much, and I, I think I can safely say this, any therapy that lowers glucose levels will improve microvascular outcomes, retinopathy, nephropathy, and neuropathy. And those are very important whether you have type 1 or type 2 diabetes. The macrovascular outcomes, which are actually the leading causes of death, strokes, and heart attacks, and heart failure patients with diabetes, those outcomes have been more difficult to establish. And until recently, with the publication of a series of outcome studies that include major adverse cardiovascular events or MACE outcomes with drugs from the GLP-1 receptor agonist category and the SGLT-2 inhibitor category, demonstrated the benefits roughly on the order of 12 to 15% reduction in MIs, strokes, or combined composites of MI strokes and death from MIs for these categories. So along with metformin, drugs from the GLP-1 receptor agonist category and SGLT2 inhibitor category have really emerged as the best therapies for diabetes management to lower cardiovascular outcomes. So we in the American Diabetes Association recognized this a few years back. And for patients with diabetes and, and existing heart disease, these drugs are important enough that they are actually recommended even for cardioprotection independent of A1C. As I mentioned before, these are also medications, especially the SGLT2 inhibitors, that are also renal protective and so may factor into the cardioprotective measures. And again, especially the SGLT2 inhibitors have been demonstrated to reduce heart failure outcomes, especially acute heart failure exacerbations needing to go to hospitalization. So we have this sort of confluence of newer diabetes medications that really demonstrate benefits on macrovascular outcomes not seen in, in other agents, which are more or less what we call non-inferior, things like DPP-4 inhibitors, even insulin for that matter. We also emphasize, although it's not a, uh, a pharmacologic outcome trial, there have been two um, recent bariatric surgery studies that demonstrate even better improvements in the major adverse cardiovascular events, the MACE outcomes, even better benefits on heart failure, and even better benefits on total mortality rate. So these are all newer tools for the providers, and they're, they're not necessarily exclusive to the referral centers. They can be used in day-to-day -day practice by the primary care docs and the advanced practice providers and also the recommendations for consideration for the weight management with the surgeries as well. 
so we've talked a little bit about therapy and throughout this conversation, we've heard about how just complex treating these cardiovascular disease and diabetes when patients have them both at the same time, there's a, there's a lot going on. Sometimes it requires a team approach. <laughs> and I wanted to ask you, we hear that idea of implementing a team approach to diabetes care, but what does a successful team approach look like to you? Yeah, I've thought a lot about this. And um, I would say, you know, right off the top, the most important team is the provider. And whether that's an MD or whether that's a, a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant and the patient. There has to be trust. There has to be um, understanding, communication between those. Beyond that, you know, it's a challenge when we, we tried to really provide some practical recommendations for the primary care docs within this uh, educational seminar. Uh, we partnered with the nurse practitioners and the physician's assistants to really provide some community resources that patients and providers can uh, access, whether that's electronic tools to help patients adhere to lifestyle measures. But when that's not enough, or if you actually are looking at more of a more specialty type team, then you're talking about bringing in uh, nutritionists and dietitians to help out. Diabetes educators are also very helpful and extend the messaging that comes from the providers. I personally, in the last several years, have been fortunate to also work with a clinical pharmacist who has been, in my mind, a game changer with regard to the quality of care we deliver because that person helps patients understand what they're going through in terms of the medications, not just dosing and side effects, but as a backup for that, they track and make sure that the medications are current. They help identify affordable sources for the medications. And it's just been an invaluable extension of, of the practice for us. You've already shared some tools, but are there any other tools or techniques that you can share that may improve patient adherence? and long-term disease outcomes? Still the best tool is the relationship between the patient and the provider. The utility of adding on with the electronic systems has, I think, benefit, um, although in terms of, say, apps that people might use to track their activity and medication tracking as well. You know, I'm not sure how much more uh, you gain with those than you do with the uh, um, regular meetings with your provider and such. We also talked about, especially for patients with diabetes, using the continuous glucose monitoring systems as well as the insulin pumps for those who, who need it. But the continuous glucose monitoring systems, while they haven't necessarily shown that overall glycemic control is improved, it definitely improves, in my view, quality of life because it helps Patients see in real time what's going on. It helps reduce hypoglycemia episodes. And I think gives them a greater appreciation of the relationship between their glucose control and their meal intake, which is kind of like the thing that's left out when all we do is check fasting blood sugars in the morning. And what we know is that as you get closer to normal glycemia or A1C levels closer to the normal range, the relative contribution of the postprandial hyperglycemia becomes more important. The stuff that you don't check 
unless you have a continuous glucose monitor. And that, uh, I think, gives patients feedback that they can see if their adjustments in their diet or their exercise patterns really is benefiting them in real time as well. But again, I think, you know, coming back also to having a clinical pharmacist to help you with adherence as well, uh, it just can't strongly uh, say how much that has been uh, help with our practice. Well, this has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to, to share your thoughts with us. Thank you, Dr. Purnell. My pleasure, Aaron, and thank you for uh, inviting me. And that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Purnell. If you want to know more about this topic, be sure to check out the three-part course we talked about entitled Current and Future State of Cardiovascular Disease and Type 2 Diabetes. It's available now and until December 31st on the Endocrine Society's Center for Learning. We'll include a link to it in the description of today's episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. And as always, thanks for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.